Hi there, I'm Marty Lucan, EdChoice's Director of Fiscal Policy and Analysis. In this episode of EdChoice Chats, we're back with another researcher profile. In these episodes, we like to introduce our listeners to some of the great minds on the economic side of school choice. What brought them into this corner of the policy world? What research do they have in the pipeline? As well as what challenges that they think the world of school choice research is facing. Today, I'm in the studio with James Schulz. He is currently serving as the Graduate Program Director and Assistant Professor of Educational Leadership and Policy Studies at the University of Missouri, St. Louis. Not only that, but James is also one of our EdChoice Fellows. Thanks for joining me today, James. Hey, it's great to be with you, Marty. So, James, uh, let's first start off, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself and telling us a little about what brought you into the K-12 space and education reform and school choice space. The first thing that brought me into the K-12 space was a yellow school bus. So, <laughs> so, so, no, sorry. Um, you, know, you did a, a lot of introduction there, but I mean, one of the things you didn't say is that I was a former public school teacher. I mean, I, I went to college to be a teacher. And actually, I went to be a coach. Uh, I wanted to coach soccer. But then when I was there, I had this advisor who said, you shouldn't be a PE teacher. You should be an elementary teacher. You're a male. You can get any job you want as a male elementary teacher, which may sound sexist to some people, but is absolutely true because we don't have very many male elementary teachers. So I switched my major, became an elementary school teacher, was teaching in Southwest Missouri, started working my master's program. And as I looked around at education, I started seeing what I called these systemic problems in education. Like all teachers, I, I went into the field, I went into the profession because I wanted to make a difference. Like that, you ask almost any teacher, they're going to tell you that. Some teacher made a difference in their lives or they want to make a difference in someone else's life. Like that's the primary motivation, I think, for most teachers. And I know it was for me. But I get in the classroom and I start seeing that some of these problems are bigger. Like I can impact 20, 25 kids in my classroom, but there are some of these issues that we need systematic reform for. We need school-wide reform. We need statewide reform for some of these issues. And it started making me think about doctoral programs and call it luck, call it God, call it a divine appointment. I don't know what it was, but I'm walking through Barnes & Noble one day. I see this interesting red and green book called Education Myths written by Jay Green. I said I was in Southwest Missouri. Just so happens Jay Green is starting a new doctoral program in, at the University of Arkansas just a couple hours away. You know, And as the rest they say is history. I moved, started the doctoral program, and it really got me prepared to start thinking and writing more deeply about these issues that I had seen from the classroom. Well, and we went through the same program together. <laughs> and it, it was... So uh, it must have been a good one, huh? It was a... Uh, it was, a, it was a good time, and it was fun, for sure. So what are some of the issues? Are, were there any particular issues that moved you, that spurred you to think this way and change direction? Well, so, so one thing, I was a fifth-grade teacher. I started out first grade, and then I moved into fifth grade. And in my fifth-grade class, my students started asking me during music time if they could stay in my classroom instead of going to music. Can we stay in your classroom? We'll, we'll, we'll wash your microwave for you. I always cooked with my microwave. It's a, like, we'll, we'll wash the board. We'll wash your microwave. Like, they would beg to clean my room instead of going to music class. And I thought, this is strange. Like, what, what fifth grade kid doesn't like music? Like, these kids are listening. At that time, it was uh, Taylor Swift was huge. I think she was still country at that point. But, like, uh, you know, they're listening to music all the time. They're singing music all the time. And they hate music class. 
And you know, as I talked to them, I realized why they hated it. So I, I went to talk to my principal and I said, I don't mean to be a tattletale. My kids hate going to music class. And he said, James, so does every other kid in this school. And I said, well, why don't you do something about it? And he said, I can't. She has tenure. She's been here forever. But that type of issue, when I start looking around and seeing there are some terrible teachers. I think I was a pretty decent teacher, but there were some terrible teachers that teachers recognize this too. And yet nobody was doing anything about it. And I realized there's a problem with this tenure system. There's a problem with the structure of education. We've got to do something about this. So that was one of the main things that started pushing me towards thinking about education policy and thinking about these things more broadly. Can I tell you another, uh, a different story? <laughs> sure. Yeah, go ahead. So, so, you know, since we're at Ed Choice, we're talking about school choice. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you that for some reason at this time period, I started thinking too about kids being assigned to schools and why I thought that it was inappropriate to be assigned to schools. You should be able to choose the school you want your kids to go to and all this sort of stuff. And uh, at the same time, my school district got involved in a lawsuit in the state and was suing the state over funding. And the district that I lived in, which was a different district from where I worked, was also suing the state. And so I wrote a letter to the editor about the lawsuit uh, saying that, you know, it was, it was wrong for our school district to be using tax dollars to sue the state. Well, the superintendent in that district sent it to my superintendent, who then called me into her office. So here I was, I think probably my second year teaching, getting called to the superintendent's office to defend my views that I'd written in a paper. And I have to say my superintendent was very nice and professional. But in that conversation, we started debating all of these issues around school finance and around choice. And uh, I remember her asking me or, or saying that you know, something about how terrible school choice was. And, and at that time, like I was unversed. I hadn't read Milton Friedman's stuff. I didn't know much about school choice. And out of nowhere, I, I knew this argument, like, how would you feel if you were assigned to a grocery store, right? which is one of our classic arguments for school choice. Like, how would you feel if you were assigned to a grocery store and knew that there are better grocery stores in the next town and you couldn't go to them because you weren't allowed to go there? And she pushed back on me, but it was just, it was one of those conversations where I really started, you know, there are those moments where you start fermenting or, or I don't know if that's the right word. You start really thinking through your views. And it was at that time where I was like, I really knew that I, I was supportive of school choice. So I was still, at that point, I was still a first grade teacher in Southwest Missouri where we had no school choice. And I knew that that students should have that option. Yeah, yeah. And what if we were assigned to higher ed institutions, you know? You and I probably would not be sitting here. But here you are, uh, <laughs> not in front of this mic, but in the education policy world doing research. So could you tell us about some of your research, perhaps what you've done and perhaps what you're working on now or hoping to work on in the future? Uh, so, I mean, a lot of the stuff I'm working on is, is related to um, school finance and especially teacher pensions, which you know, I know that you're really interested in. But the, the issue for me around teacher pensions is looking at how teacher salaries impact their benefits. And what, I'm, what I've been showing in my research is that the pension system favors richer districts. Like this is, this is an equity issue because in richer districts have steeper salaries, steeper salary profiles. You know, over the years, they give larger raises and pensions are typically based on your last three years. 
in, in the poorer districts, they tend to be relatively flat in their earnings profile where they don't give large raises. And so if you worked for a career in a richer district or a poorer district, you would get more bang for your buck in the rich district than you were the poor district. So I look at this and I, I think that there, there are some equity problems with the pension system. So that's a lot of my research has been around that lately. But, you know, more germane, again, to, to Ed Choice, I have this piece coming out in the uh, Kansas Journal of Law and, and Policy thinking about school choice and school finance. I'm trying to blend my two worlds. I, so one world is sort of school finance and one world is, is school choice, the two things that I sort of love. And so I try to blend them together in this paper. And I talk about how in school finance, one of the big issues is equity, right? We push for equity all the time that, you know, it's not fair that some districts have a lot of money to spend and, and neighboring districts will have very little bit and it's all based on their property values. And so equity is a paramount conversation in school finance. And then when we make arguments for school choice, we also make equity arguments. We say it's not fair that people are defined by their zip code. It's not fair that poor students have fewer educational options. And so we make an equity argument. And then when we create a school choice program, we inherently create them inequitable. We create charter schools that don't get facilities funds. Right? We create voucher programs that get a fraction of the dollar amount that they would have gotten had they gone to public schools. When we create ESA or tax credit scholarship programs, like, you know, students are getting $2,000, or I think, or slightly more than that on average in one of these scholarship programs. So we create school choice programs inherently fiscally inequitable. And so I, as I argue in this paper, I say, how can we start to think about school choice as also a solution to the financial equity piece? And I think, you know, my ideas are still in their infancy stage. But I think this is where we can continue to push forward, push people's thinking. So we have, for decades, we've built up the system that disadvantages certain groups, whether it's groups of students, and also how we compensate teachers disadvantages certain groups of teachers. We penalize mobility, penalize career changers, not staying in a system, you know, for an entire career, and penalize young teachers, right? So we have this system that's pretty rigid and it's not adaptable and highly inequitable. Can school choice be a remedy? And if so, how? Or at least part of the solution? I mean, perhaps not the solution. Yeah. I, I mean, you look at education and I think about you know, almost all the problems we see, and not all of them, but a lot of the problems that we see in education are simply because we don't have markets or we don't have a pricing system. We don't have the cues that typically come with markets that show you how salaries and wages should rise and tell you how the expenditures for school should should go up or down or whatever. The problem, in my opinion, is is a lack of market. So you think about teachers for your salary, which you mentioned. I was, again, an elementary education major. I went to a small state college, nothing rigorous. I mean, not, nothing very, I mean, I love my school, don't get me wrong, but it wasn't like the Ivy Leagues here. When I took math in, in college, I had a course called College Algebra for Educators. So you had the regular algebra class, and then you had the easier college algebra class called College Algebra for Educators. I'm not even lying. Like, that was the name of the course. And they did the same thing for physics, okay? So I graduate with my elementary education major, and then I go to look for a job, and I get a job in a district, and 
I'm making the exact same amount as the guy who got the physics degree from a Ivy League or a top tier university. Right? That makes no sense. And the problem, and look at who applied for the job. When I applied for an elementary education job, there might have been a hundred applications or more. You look at the physics job, there might have been three people who applied. And yet they give us the same salary. That doesn't make any sense. The market would dictate that the person with the demanded skills gets paid more money. And so why do we have this persistent STEM problem? Where I mean, we've been talking about STEM for decades now. Right? People have been pushing for STEM since like, uh, the, the, I don't want to say the Coleman Report, or, or like the nation at risk, right? We've been pushing for STEM for decades. And we've made no headway. Well, look at the stupid things we do, like paying physics teachers the same as we pay first grade teachers when you have an oversupply of first grade teachers and not enough physics teachers, right? And this is what I'm talking about. The market could fix that problem in the same way school choice could start increasing the demand for teachers, where schools are actually recruiting teachers. You never see that in public education. I work with administrators, and you don't see administrators scouting out the best talent to come to their schools because it's you're thought about as, uh, as a poacher or stealing someone else's teachers, right? We need to get beyond that in education and start realizing that the market is how we improve this, not just for teachers, but when we, we put these things in place, it also improves things for students. So two audiences that are very important to us, policymakers and parents, what lessons should they take away from your work? <laughs> That's it. I don't know. That's a good question. The, the, I think what I just said, right, it's, it's that we need more markets. Like we need more choice and competition. We need more opportunities for individuals. So you know, this, this is even when you look at the pension stuff. When we have one rigid system that sets up specific rules and requirements, it creates unintended outcomes, right? Nobody created the pension system thinking, hey, let's really screw over the teachers in poor districts. Like, nobody did that, right? The pension system was created because they wanted to ensure a secure retirement for individuals and an orderly retirement. Like, we wanted to get those old birds out of the classroom. Like, you look back at the early documents, and these were the arguments that people were making. It was that we want old people to retire. We want them to leave, but we want them to be okay. Like, we don't want to kick Mrs. Johnson out of school when she turns 80 and not have a safety net. Like, so those were the main arguments for pensions, but now look what has happened. Look at your work or, or, or the work of Mike Podgurski and Bob Castrell. We see that the pension system is creating all kinds of other problems, these unintended consequences, negative externalities. Use whatever I was told earlier not to use those big words, so I apologize to any of the listeners. <laughs> right? so, but what we're seeing is negative things coming out of what was intended to be good. In the same way, like I look at the public education system, no one created the public education system. I shouldn't say no one. There might have been someone out there. But so for the most part, public education had really noble intentions. We wanted to serve individuals. We wanted to do it in an effective and efficient way. But then look what happened. You put up artificial boundaries, which leads to segregation of individuals with haves and have-nots of different races and the different places. By your unintended, the unintended consequences of this system is that we have a school system that favors the wealthy, you know, privileges them, 
and puts the poor in a disadvantaged place. And so the I think maybe the overarching theme of everything is that when we our best intentions often go wrong and a better solution is to let the market work. So you're pretty well published academic journals, but you write not, a lot. Not well, not well enough. I need to get more. <laughs> you're you're almost there at uh, tenure. <laughs> but you you write a lot of op-eds, blog posts, things like that. You know, and so you've gotten your voice out there, and we appreciate it. We're glad that you're getting your voice out there to shed some light on some of these issues and further discussion. So uh, just for a bit of fun, what has been your favorite post or op-ed to work on and why? Well, that's a good question. I don't, I don't know uh, what has been my favorite post. Um, so I'd have to think about it a bit more. But, I mean, there was one that I wrote for Ed Joyce that, that you guys published a, a blog post thinking about how do we get really good schools? I mean, all of the conversation that we have in school choice it, it is almost always about bad schools, right? Oh, we got to close bad schools. Oh, we got to save children from bad schools. Or like, the truth is, even in bad schools, you oftentimes have many wonderful educators who are trying their hardest. Like, so all of our energy is spent on what we perceive as the really bad schools. But the truth is, what we all want is really good schools, right? And they're not all bad, to, to be clear. They're just not once. It doesn't work for everyone. Well, what I'm saying yeah. is, like, that's the, the conversation, though. So, like, yeah. I go to testify in Jefferson City, Missouri quite regularly. And when I go talk about a school choice issue, the conversation is almost always about the students in the lowest performing school districts or, and don't get me wrong, I want to help students in disadvantaged places get more opportunities. But what I'm trying to say is that what we really want is more good schools. Because when we have more good schools and when we have choice, the bad schools are going to close, right? So we need to be thinking about how do we foster, how do we grow great schools? And so the piece that I I wrote for Ed Choice uh, a while back was, thinking about restaurants, like in the town that I grew up in, you had like the truck stop diner. You didn't have any nice places. And most of education's thinking around how do you get schools to be better is you put in place regulations and standards. And the point that I made is there is no regulation and standard you're going to put on that truck stop diner to make it a five-star restaurant. You are That's not going to happen. And yet our policies tend to be trying to push for development through heavy-handed regulation. But that's not how it works. Like that, those commercials. That's not how any of this works, right? <laughs> like, that's not how this works. The way we get the schools we want is through choice and competition, right? When, when you have a market and people are choosing, then businesses get better, they improve, and a new place opens because it fits the need. We had a lot of truckers in our area, so that's why they needed it. But, but you know, where there's a need and a desire for something and people are able to choose it, things get better. And so that's how you drive improvement is fostering a market, not heavy-handed regulations. And so that's a piece I wrote that I think is really good and, and something we need to do more thinking about. Well, we'll uh, put a link up to that for our listeners. Can you tell us a bit about some of the challenges you see facing the school choice movement and advocates right now? Yeah, well, that's a that's a good question too. So, yeah, you know, we see school choice is growing. Like it's regularly growing. We see charter schools being added all the time. We see new private school choice programs 
seems like every year a new one is added. So I do think that we are moving in a very good direction. I think that some of the concern or where we're going to see a lot of pushback, and I don't know, I was going to say I don't know the answer, but I kind of do, I think I do, is around these sort of social issues in private schools where, or, or issues related to what private schools are teaching. We see some outcry around private schools that are teaching creationism or they're not teaching evolution right or they don't have transgender bathroom policies. or like, So I think a lot of those issues are being brought up to attack. Like that seems like the new line of attack. Uh, I don't know if it's new, but it's a, a more prevalent line of attack against school choice policies. And I think it's something that us, you know, people who are, I'm going to call myself an advocate for school choice, need to have a response to and an answer to because those sorts of conversations and challenges are going to continue to come up. I would agree with that. And yeah, there have been certainly some new challenges and big challenges recently in that vein. So what are some of the research gaps that you think or informational gaps for school choice? Is there any research you think is missing right now that would help inform, you know, how effective these programs are or that could inform program design? Well, I mean, I think a lot of researchers are stepping into the gaps, right? So the research for a long time was on academic outcomes. It was on mm-hmm. test scores, immediate test score outcomes. And we saw some benefits. Then we saw some people saying there aren't benefits, right? There's been more recently, there are some studies suggesting that there aren't academic benefits. But then people started over time looking at the long term and now people are shifting to look at not just those academic benefits, but also the outcomes like graduation from high school, graduation from college. We're now shifting into non-cognitive things like grit or perseverance or those sorts of things. So I think a lot of the research, the reason that there were gaps is because the programs were relatively new. Right? And as we go along, we're able to answer more and more questions. And I think the, the research is naturally evolving to fill a lot of those gaps. I think and a lot of people are doing really interesting and, and wonderful work around this. So it's hard for me to say where is the biggest gap. But I'll give a you know sort of a self-plug for you and me. Because I mentioned earlier two of my favorite issues are around school finance and school choice. To me, as I think about school choice, it always feels like we're taking whatever we can get. We're thinking, not that we're thinking small, but programs oftentimes have to be small and we are just trying to work within the confines of whatever the system. But I really like the idea of thinking about what would the ideal be? What would it look like if you had an ideal funding structure for a school choice? What does that, what does that look like? Where does, the, where does the money come from? How is it raised? How is it distributed? So I think those types of things, like the bigger questions around What's the right structure to foster a system that allows choice and competition, that allows the market to grow, the type of work that you and I are trying to do? I think that that's where the gap is, and I think we're trying to fill it. Well, we that, that, <laughs> that's our, that piece That's is. our own plug right there. <laughs> yep, and that should be uh, coming out hopefully sometime later this year. But, you know, James, it's, uh, it's always a joy talking with you. Thank you for being with us today. Hey, it's great to be with you. Nib high football rules. (laughs) To our listeners, thank you so much for taking the time to get to know James Scholes with me today. 
As always, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for more of our coverage of new school choice research, education reform policy chats, and more. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon for more Ed Choice Chats. Thank <laughs> you.